This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Hey there, welcome back to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and in this episode, we're finishing a message that we started last time with Pastor Jeff. So far, he's been establishing the pain Jesus went through before the cross and on the cross. He's getting to the point that when we're struggling with chaos and all seems lost, there is one that we can turn to. If you miss any of this series, you can catch up. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds on your favorite podcast app. Let's finish this message with Pastor Jeff together right here on Today with Jeff Finds. Herod can't wait to meet Jesus. Jesus, he says, do some great signs and wonders for us. He thinks Jesus is a circus sideshow. And of course, Jesus just stands there, does not open his mouth, refuses to do any, any, any things like that. So Herod's frustrated. Now, it's important to know here that Herod, what was called in those days, had his men of war. These were men who were professionals at brutality and torture. There is great chance that Jesus is beaten all the way from the garden to the Sanhedrin tribe, beaten from the Sanhedrin tribe all the way to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod. Herod's men of war most probably worked Jesus over and sent him back to Pilate. So he's being beaten relentlessly, no food, no water, and again, his skin is incredibly sensitive to touch. Pilate receives him back. Pilate's frustrated. He knows there's nothing in Jesus that warrants death, so he comes out and he says to the people so. And they cry, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate gets concerned that he might be seen as an insurrectionist and that he might lose his job with the empire. So he comes out in a, in a, in a metaphor, in a, in a kind of a symbolic act. He washes his hands and says, my hands are clean of this man's blood. And the people yell out, fine, fine. Let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. Now, at that point, the Bible says in Matthew 27, that he delivered them to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. The whole garrison, that's 600 men. 600 men gather around Jesus in the praetorian guard. Now, when they receive Jesus, in their minds, Jesus is no different than any other common criminal. They don't know who Jesus is. They're Romans. So they think, here's somebody's committed treason, and they're going to punish Jesus like they would any other criminal. And here's what they do. There's going to be a stump jutting out of the ground in the middle of the Praetorian Guard, and they're going to take Jesus' hands, and they're going to tie it first like this. And then the Roman lictor, he's going to come out, and he's schooled in this kind of torture because the Romans were good at keeping you alive as long as possible so that you could suffer as much pain as possible. But the first thing they're going to do is take a whip, and they're going to lay it on his back just to cause the stripes. But that's just the beginning. And 
39 lashes, that's an old wives' tale. The reality is the Roman lictor did it until he was tired of doing it. Some people called scourging halfway death because a lot of people died before they ever made it to the cross. The word for scourging is the word fragalao, which is the word open bowel. Because when you're scourged, you're scourged to such a degree that you can actually start to see internal organs. But the Romans were professionals at this, to make you suffer the most while keeping you alive the longest. The Bible tells us that Jesus suffered every bit of this after hematrogosis, after the betrayal of his friends, of intimacy, independence, and then... The Bible says that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, take a purple robe and they put it on Jesus. It's going to be very heavy, and the only way I know how to describe it is very scratchy. And the whole point is to put this on the back of Jesus, where it's basically raw now from the scourging. And then the Bible says they're going to take a crown of thorns. These are two-inch barbed quills that grow in and around the city of Jerusalem. And they're going to smash this down on his head and let those thorns go deep into the skull, penetrating the flesh. And then they're going to put a reed in his right hand. And here's what they're doing. They're saying to Jesus, you say you're a king? Okay, let's dress you up like one. They give him the crown of Caesar, the purple robe of Caesar, and then this represents the scepter that Caesar carried around during festive occasions. And they would give him a reed, and then the Bible says in Luke and Matthew that they took this reed and they smashed the crown of thorns over Jesus' head so that the thorns would be driven deeper into his flesh. And so after they had done that, Jesus is so weak, so exhausted, and remember we're talking about the king of kings here, the son of the living God, that they take him out and he's unable to carry the patabulum. The patabulum is the crossbeam of the cross. The vertical part of the cross is on Mount Golgotha. The, the crossbeam he's expected to carry on his back is 200 pounds. There's no way he's going to be able to do that after going through this. So there's a man, we're told, Simon Serene, who is visiting there because of the Passover. And Simon of Serene carries Jesus' cross for him. But make no mistake, as he's carrying Jesus' cross, the Roman lictor is still bringing that whip onto the back of Jesus all the way up to Golgotha. When they get to Golgotha, the top, they lay the crossbeam down, they put Jesus on there, and they start to drive the nails. This is the closest I could get for you. It's going to be somewhere between five and seven inches long. You say, how do you know that? We know that because of an archaeological dig in 1968 where we discovered the nails in the crucifixion and how deep the wounds were and actually where they crucified people during the time of Titus in AD 70. And so they're going to take these nails, and they're going to nail not here, the nail goes here. It crushes the median nerve. It has to go here because if you nail Jesus here when he's put on the cross, the body won't stay in place. It'll rip through the flesh and he'll fall off the cross. They nailed it here so the nail can rest up against the, uh, the tarsal bone. When they drive the nail through here, it will crush the median nerve. Uh, the median nerve is a lot like your funny bone that's really not that funny, is it? And if you take a pair of pliers and you squeeze that and crush it, that's the kind of pain that Jesus is going to experience when they crucify him here. And it's going to take about five to seven pounds to get the nail driven through the flesh into the wood of the cross. And then they're going to nail not here on the top of the foot, but right above the ankle. And it's going to be painful. Now, Jesus ultimately is going to die from asphyxiation. He's going to suffocate. Because when they put you on the cross... They dislocate both your shoulders. And so you're in pain there. You're stretched out. You're stretched, and the diaphragm on the crucifixion is put in an inhale position. So you've got air, but there's no way to exhale. And you have to exhale to get the next breath of air. The only way you can do that is by pushing yourself forcefully up on the cross and relieving the tension so that you can exhale and then inhale with another breath. The problem with that is Jesus' back is totally splintered, and he continues to rub it on the splinters of the wood of the cross. 
and the deep gashes and the wounds and the blood, and there will come a time when Jesus is so weak that he can no longer push himself up to get the next breath. That's why Jesus knew when death was near and said, into thy hands, Father, I commend my spirit. He knew that he could no longer push himself up and that death was near. The Bible then tells us that there's a Roman soldier that took a spear, something like this, probably a little shorter than this one, tell you, and he put it up to the cross and shoved it through Jesus' abdomen into his heart. And the Bible says, what does it say? What, what, what came out of Jesus at that point? Blood and water. Some time ago, people read that and say, see, that proves right there the Bible's legend. How does water and blood? Well, it's a, again, it's a medical condition. It's called pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. It's when uh, liquid develops around the membrane of the heart and the lungs during hypovolemic shock. And so it makes perfect sense that the soldier drove the sword and blood and water, the membrane had been burst, came out, and Jesus died. Now, Pastor Jeff, why on earth did you take us through all of that? Because every time I go through this story, it reminds me of two things. Number one, it reminds me of who I am. Not too long ago, I saw two movies, and this was about 15, probably 20 years ago, that I wish I had never seen. I've mentioned this before. The one movie was Prince of Tides. The other movie was Dead Man Walking. Those are two movies that I wish I had never seen. As a matter of fact, after I saw those movies, I drew a line in the sand of types of movies I would no longer go to. Because there are memories of those movies. They were both based on true stories. And the atrocities, it was horrific criminal activity and the abuse of people. It was, it was so vividly graphic that I can't get those things out of my mind. And there was a sense of justice that was missing. And I wanted so desperately for justice to come for the people who had been abused. It's kind of like the, the thing that I felt when I first saw Schindler's List. There was something that just didn't sit right with me. Even still today, there's something that doesn't sit right that Hitler would be able to go before God and God would say, ah, no, you killed all those people. That's, forget it. Doesn't sit well with me. Doesn't sit well with me that somebody could come in overnight and rape my wife and kill my children and the judge the next day in court would say, ah, I know you didn't really mean that. Don't worry. Doesn't sit right. Let me tell you why it doesn't sit right. Because every single person in this room knows that unless this world has some sense of justice attached to it, it would make no sense whatsoever. And there's also something inside us that we know that justice is going to roll one day. And we like to talk about God as a God of love, and he is a God of love, but the God of the Bible is a God of justice too, and we would expect God to be a God of justice. The problem is, while we're more than happy to God, for God, to administer justice on those people who've done really bad things, we would rather God not bring justice into our lives when we do bad things. We like God's justice as long as we're not the target. And the cross reminds me who I really am because the reason Jesus went through this graphic, horrific punishment was to remind you and me of how serious our sin is and how great the love of God is that he would bring everything on his son that we deserve so that we would not have to suffer any of it. That God is a God of justice and holiness and love. 
And we deserve everything, but he took it all for us. That God turned his face away from his son so that he would never have to turn his face away from me. But it goes beyond that. Stay with me. You've heard that before. But do you know who I find myself to be most like in this story? Judas. What? Pastor Jeff? Judas? Yes. Judas. You think of Judas' kiss. It meant nothing. You think about a mother who can't have children, and she adopts a young boy, and she makes infinite number of sacrifices in this young boy's life. And she doesn't even mind, because she loves him so much. She sacrifices her time, money, her goals, even her life goals, because she wants a good life for this little boy. He grows up, he goes to college because she sacrificed so much. Second year of college, he drops out, goes to the bank, draws all the money out. His mother doesn't hear from him for four months. He's wasted everything. Then finally, one day he comes home, he walks into the house and he says, hi, mom, sorry you haven't heard from me in four months. Sorry I wasted all the money. You know, I'm like that. And he goes, he goes up to her and he gives her a kiss and says, but I need some more money. Can I have some? Unless the mother is what we call an enabling mother, the mother's going to say, son, I love you, but I don't think you understand how relationship works. You don't love me. You're just using me. And I find myself to be like that more often than not. That I want to live a life of independence away from God. And I want to do my own thing and not think about him very often until I really need him for something. And then I'm more than willing to go and give him a kiss. But I don't love him. I'm just using him. You know, God has given us so much. I was thinking about Victoria Falls again this past week and how beautiful it is. And the fact that I'd made my daughter a promise that I was going to take her there. Well, she held me to that promise, and next year, I'm going to take her. She's already looking forward to the trip. When she sees it, what the Shona people of Africa call Musio Tunio, the smoke that thunders because of the water that comes down out of the Zambezi and then blasts and creates a rainforest. She's going to do what most Christians have done the first time they see it. It's so awesome that there's a tendency within the human heart to say, who do I thank for this? Somebody's got to be thanked for this beautiful, wondrous, incredible sight. I haven't seen the Grand Canyon yet. I hope to soon. I did see the snow on the mountains of the 210 this past week. <laughs> it was beautiful. G.K. Chesterton said, if my children have Santa to thank for putting candy into their stockings, who do I have to thank for putting two feet into mine? Life, breath. Everything I have comes from God, and yet I'm like Judas. I want to live independently from him and do my own thing, and I don't want to follow his precepts, but when I get in trouble because I've strayed away, I want to come running back, and I want to give him a kiss and say, by the way, I'm in trouble. Can you get me out of this? Thank God. He's the kind of God who loves us in a way we could never imagine. There is a verse in the Bible that talks about what God is like out of Isaiah. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. God is saying, you want to know what I'm like? Imagine a mother with a newborn baby and it's time for feeding. And she drops the child and goes away. A mother would not do that. But God says, even if she were to do that, I would never leave you. Isn't God amazing that you can live like that? away from God, a sense of independence, and betray his intimacy, and yet still he says, I'm right here. 
I'm right here. I will not leave you. Turn to me. Turn to me. You ever wondered why it is that when Jesus said, guys, one of you will betray me, and the disciples didn't say, yep, yeah, and we know just who it is. That guy, Judas, over there. Yeah, we went out preaching. Nobody came forward, did some miracles. He couldn't do any, and he's always argumentative. It must be him. What did they do instead? All of them said, is it I? Every single one of them. Is it me? Is it me? Because they all knew that they were culpable, that it was possible to live like that with Jesus, to live independent from him until you get in trouble and then run to him. And what the Bible wants you to understand through the cross and through intimacy is this, that every time we stray away from God, there are serious consequences. Not only have we broken the law of God, but more importantly, it wants you to see that you've broken his heart. He's not going anywhere. He's right there, but you've broken his heart. And until we become people that go past Judas, into a meaningless kiss, into a kiss that is real and we love him for who he is and for what he's done, we'll never know the joy of life and living. But there's a second thing it teaches me. Not only teaches me who I am, but it teaches me who God is. And this is my favorite part. Remember we talked about mocking. This is the end. So stay with me. We talked about mocking. And they mocked, they mocked him because they could not see God in the darkness. The senselessness of what Jesus was encountering, there's no way that God would allow his prophet to go through that if he was really his prophet. So therefore, God is not here if I can do this or if the darkness comes, the presence of God is then absent. I'm just like the mockers, so are you. When things don't go our way and the darkness comes over our lives, what's one of the first things we do? God is not real or God does not love me, or God is not here, because there's no way God could be here and this senseless activity occurring. I'm just like them. When we first came out to take the job here, we had to drive our little Jeep all the way from Lexington to San Dimas, and their motorcycle ministry meet us at a McDonald's up to 15. So my first view of Southern California was a bunch of motorcycle guys. Man, I love this church. <laughs> and they escorted us all the way into San Dimas. It was fantastic. We stopped in Memphis. It was our first night to sleep. It took us five days to get out here. There was a tornado. I'd never seen one, even though I, even though I grew up in Tennessee. And the darkness that came over that place, I was scared to death. But I didn't want my wife and children to know. So we're driving down. Sirens are going off. It's raining. There's dark cloud just following us. And I said, don't worry, kids. That, that tornado's a long way from here. What a lie. <laughs> and then the rain hits, and then it really gets dark. And I, the GPS isn't working. I'm trying to get to our hotel. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare. And because I'm ADD, my mind started to wander. And I thought, man, I wish I could get in an airplane right now and just fly right above that darkness. Because up above all that, I know what's there clear blue sky, and all the stars are as bright as ever. That's what the cross communicates to every single one of us, that even in the darkest time of our lives, when it seems chaotic, that the view God has is always one of clear blue sky, and the stars are as bright as ever. 
Corrie Ten Broom, who suffered through the concentration camp, said, no matter how deep the pit of despair, God's love is deeper still. No matter how dark, the darkest knot of the soul, God's light is lighter still. And one day, all the darkness in your life, one day you'll have much more clarity of what God was doing and how he was organizing everything and how he, look, the bottom line is this. This is what I want us to remember, this one phrase. If God can take the senselessness and tragedy of Jesus' life and turn it into something cosmically wonderful, the same thing can be true of all history and all your life. Think of how senseless it looked in the crucifixion of Jesus and the torture and the brutality, yet God takes that, takes that, and brings something that's cosmically beautiful. And if he did that with his son, the cross is supposed to remind you he can do the same with your life. Now, here's the problem. People say, yeah, but Pastor Jeff, you don't understand this chaos in my life. I brought it on myself. Man, I made a bad decision of who to marry. Man, I made a bad decision on how to raise my kids. I've made a bad decision in my career. I've made so many bad decisions in the darkness in my life. I brought it on myself. How does God deal with that? Let me tell you how he deals with it. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Both denied or betrayed him. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? The difference is Peter wept. He wept. And when you take all of your past and you put it into the vat of repentance, gold comes out on the other side. When you say, all right, God, I've messed up. I'm sorry. Then God begins to do his best work. See, the problem is with most of us, do you really, listen, and this is the end. Do you really think a Jesus who would go through all of this for you, that would endure all of this pain and suffering because he loves you so much, do you really think that because he loves you and all of these things he has done, do you really think that just because you've messed up your life, he's going to leave you? Really? If he was willing to endure all of this for you, he'll endure your mess-ups. All of them. Because that's the way God is. And if you ever doubt his love, all you've got to remember is that Jesus stretched out his hands and he died for you. So as we go through this series and we talk about your family and your children and all the things in your life, I hope that you will remember this foundational message that it is true that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And if you've messed up your life and there's chaos, keep coming. Let's talk about how to right the ship. But you need to know Jesus is for you and loves you and will always be with you. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you for the power of your love. I thank you for the power of this passage all through Luke chapter 22 and the story of the passion. Father, from the time that Jesus endured pain and suffering in the garden to the way of the cross, Father, I thank you that you revealed to us the depths of your love. I pray for repentant hearts. I pray for those who find themselves and they know they're far from you. I pray that you'd grant them the desire and passion to come near to you. I pray for those who know that they've been living away from you, a life of independence, while expecting you to always deliver them out of the chaos they created in their lives. I pray, I pray for God, that you would remind them that you've always been here, you're always there, and if we will but turn to you and say, God, I wanna live in intimacy with you again, I wanna live inside that circle, and I wanna live life 
the way you designed it to be, knowing that the greatest peace and the joy and the way life was meant to be lived will become a reality in my life. I thank you for this truth and the depths of your love that echoes through all of eternity by way of the cross in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.